My whole teaching today is going to be based on Numbers chapter 32, verse 3. I will read it to you. Atarot, Dibon, Jazer, Nimra, Heshbon, Alela, Sabam, Nebo, and Baon. And everybody said, Amen. Well, this is actually a famous verse in Judaism. This is a verse that has nothing but a bunch of place names in it. <laughs> and this verse is famously called by the first two names in here. It's called Atarot Vedivon. Everybody say, Atarot Vedivon. This is like the, the figurehead verse of a specific teaching about the Torah. Now, some of us may say, why is that verse in the Bible? Of all the things that God could have said, why is Numbers 32, verse 3, a bunch of names? I mean, I've never been to those places. I don't really know where they are. And uh, they're probably not even called by those names any, any, anymore anyway. And uh, several thousand years ago, there were Jewish people who were tempted to think the same thing. So there's, there's an interesting discussion amongst the sages based on this concept of, well, why are there some passages in the Bible that don't seem to be relevant? And uh, I wanted to share that with you all. Actually, I, I had a similar thing when I was younger. In my mid-teens, I enjoyed telling people that my favorite verse in the Bible was First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 25. And I actually memorized it. It's three words. Eber, Peleg, Ru. That was my favorite verse in the Bible I enjoyed telling people. Profound. <laughs> so, perhaps it's... Yeah, it's part of the genealogy. Um, Eber, Peleg, Ru. Then the next verse... Well, the verse before it says, Shem, Arphixad, Shelah. And then the verse after it says, uh, it, it goes on to like Avram's grandfather, I think. So it's these, this genealogy. Anyway, <laughs> so it's these verses that, you know, are genealogies that maybe people question the, like the applicacy of. But it's interesting to think about this. We can either ask ourselves the question... <laughs> how is the word relevant to my life? Or we can ask ourselves the question, how can I make my life relevant to the word? And there's a difference in orientation when we come to the scriptures. I think it's, it's natural human psyche to believe that the entire universe revolves around us. And that's ingrained in us from a very early age when we're little babies. <laughs> and sometimes we, are, we even tend to think, like unconsciously, without realizing it, that the scriptures also revolve around us. We, we think we're the center of the spiritual universe. And this is a ver- these, reading these verses, it kind of helps break out of that, right? It's like, wait a minute, this is totally irrelevant to my life, but maybe, maybe it is relevant so, somehow. Father, how is your word relevant? Or how can I make my life more relevant to your word? So that's a really, it's a really fun theme. And, uh, there's an interesting, uh, discussion. It's in a traditional Jewish source called Brechot, 8a, pages 8a to 8b. And, uh, they're talking about how in the Jewish tradition a couple thousand years ago, this is probably what Yeshua grew up with, uh, they would read the whole parasha at home. So they would study through it together, probably as a family throughout the week. And then they would go to congregation and they would read the, through the whole parasha again at synagogue on Saturday mornings. So they would read through it twice in Hebrew. And then they would also go on to read the Targum of the passage, which is the Aramaic translation. Aramaic was one of the more common languages in Israel and in the Middle East at that time. So they would read the whole parasha twice in Hebrew, once at home and once at synagogue, and then they would also read a translation of it. Wow! 
Maybe we should try to start doing that, hey? Let's start reading through the whole parsha in Hebrew at home, and then reading through the whole thing again in Hebrew at congregation. Okay, how, how about this? We'll work something else out. We'll read it in English once at home, we'll read it in English once here, and then we'll read a paraphrase like the message here at congregation. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> it would be kind of fun. I enjoy, I enjoy the, the fresh perspective that the message can bring sometimes. But anyway, I just thought it was cool to have an understanding of the way the Jewish people handled these Torah portions in uh, Yeshua's generation. This is how he would have grown up. This is how his disciples grew up. And it's probable that this tradition was reflected in the early Messianic communities also. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we're going to start reading the whole Torah portion every Shabbat. It certainly doesn't mean that you're expected to read it all in Hebrew. Although, if you're learning Hebrew, it's beneficial to just read, like, one verse a day, or read a short section a day, and then you grow regularly over time. That, that's advisable. But uh, what could we learn from this? Maybe, maybe one thing we can learn in is that it, 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 we, we would do well to go through the Torah portion throughout the week. Actually, you're, this is cool. I have to tell you guys this story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, okay, you know what? It talks about the Shema. It says, uh, speak of these things while you sit in your home and when you're driving in your car. Uh, talk about these things while you're, uh, while you're going to bed and while you're getting up in the morning. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what it says. And, uh, you know, the, the Jewish understanding of that was, well, say the Shema during these, these, these special times. So, of course, you know, we'll say the Shema, the Hero Israel passage, last thing when we go to bed, Genevieve and I, and when we get up in the morning, and we'll pray also. But I've been thinking, you know, maybe, maybe on a broader level, this isn't just about saying the Shema a couple times a day. As meaningful that, as that is, as weighty as those words are, of which the Master said that they're the greatest commandment, maybe it's about, Torah study in general. Maybe it's talking about just living in the Word, always having my mind close to the Word, like asking questions and contemplating, you know. So I, 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 I made a commitment to really try and get into that more. Uh, before that, Genevieve's and my tradition was, you know, I would bind to fill in and I would get my Talit on and I would read the whole parasha in one sitting to her and Tirza. And you know, when you get to two parishes like that, that can be a lot of text, even in English. And it certainly is a lot of text in Hebrew. And we had, we've had a great time with it, eh? But I'm thinking maybe there's, maybe there was some way that, maybe there's some way that we could kind of get into it on a more regular basis. So, uh, two weeks ago, I decided, uh, to start reading a little bit every morning instead of reading the whole thing in one shot. The helpful thing is, you know how, uh, each Torah portion is break, broken up into seven sections. Each section is called an Aliyah, right? Because you make Aliyah to read the section. So there are seven Aliyot in every parsha. And hey, there are seven, seven days in the week too. There are seven mornings when I get up and I could spend some time in focused concentration on the Word. So I, I've been trying to get up and just read one of those aliot every morning from the parasha and then just let the main theme sink into my consciousness and maybe get a, maybe get something practical out of it that I can take with me throughout the day so that I can hold it in my mind so that, you know, when, uh, when Colin and I talk on, talk on the phone, which we do regularly, I can be like, Colin, uh, you know what I read this morning? And I could maybe share something, you know? So we could always have those divrei Torah, those words of Torah in our mouths. So that, that was the idea. And it's been going really great. But the coolest thing is, I told Colin about this, it was two Sundays ago, right, Colin? And uh, Colin said, that's exactly what I started doing. And did we start on the same day without talking with each other? Or was it within a week or two of each other? What? Yeah. So it was just the Spirit prompted us both at the same time to start doing this. And would you know it, one of the Waller boys was standing there, 
in the conversation. And he said, I started doing that this morning. He just felt prompted to start doing that that morning. So it just felt like... Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's a a cool insight into Yeshua's world. And maybe it's a, a cool insight into how we can handle the Torah. So it's not just something we read at synagogue on Shabbat, but it's something that we're getting into regularly. We're putting deep roots down into it. So that when the storms come, we won't be like those trees that all got smashed all over PA, eh? Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's the whole concept between Atarot Vedivon. It's the, uh, the, it's the aspiration to make my life relevant to the scriptures. Um, okay. This is really cool. Uh, do you remember our congregation's birth parsha was Lech Lecha? It's the third portion in the book of Genesis. And Lech Lecha is where Elohim spoke to Avram. God said to Abram, go for yourself. Remember that. Go for yourself to the land that I'll show you. And as it turned out, it was the land of Israel. And uh, then last month, I think it was, we looked at the parsha that was named Shalach Lecha, send for yourself. And that was the one where Yahweh spoke to Moshe and said, send 12 spies into the land to check out the land and to uh, get a good analysis of it. And uh, we were talking about how there was a stage here. Uh, it begins in our personal discipleship to the Master. When we hear him say, go for yourself, and you go for yourself into the Torah, into discipleship to Yeshua, as he teaches us, uh, as we go for ourselves into understanding the role that each of us play in Israel, our, our covenant connection. Uh, we talked about how from there, you move on to the place where it says Shalach Lecha, and Shalach was the root of apostle. We remember that. That's the, that's the stage where you've gone through some of the training, and he's beginning to give you assignments. He's beginning to prompt you on missions. He's beginning to use you to uh, speak his word into people's lives and things like that. And here we have the final phase, stage three of, of this. Only it doesn't say something Lecha, it says something Lechem which is like, do this for yourselves. So I want to look at that together. Because I, th- I, I think it completes the picture that we've been talking about. Uh, Numbers 32, verse 21. Moshe is talking to these two and a half tribes who want to live on the east side of the Jordan. And in Hebrew he says, avar lachem kol chalutz et hayarden he says, and cross over for yourselves, or cross over to yourselves, all of you armed across the Jordan before Yahweh. That's what he says. So here, the first stage is, lach lecha, go for yourself. The second stage is, shalach lecha, uh, begin sending out and uh, going on those missions. And here's the, here's the third stage. This is a congregational stage. This applies to communities. Avar lachem, cross over for yourselves. So the first step, like, you're off in the distance. You can see the vision in the future. The, the second step is, you're almost there and you're beginning to, uh, you're beginning to see it closer up. And the third stage is, you're actually going into what he has for you. And maybe we could ask ourselves, why are those, why are those first two phrases in Hebrew singular? Go, go for yourself. And then send for yourself. But this third one is in the plural. Why, why, why did he say that? Maybe it's because we can only truly cross over into what he has for us. Maybe we can only truly accomplish our mission to the full as a community of disciples. Do you think that could be true? I think it could be true.
I think that's a, a great message for those of us in Western society, where deep down inside of us, each of us has a little John Wayne that just wants to run out there and do it all ourselves. Hey, I don't have a little John Wayne. I have a, I have a sizable John Wayne inside of me, and I have to keep being like, don't, don't, stop. You know, I'm, I'm learning a lot about about community and about interdependence and teamwork and all all those good themes. <laughs> so anyway. Um, there are a couple other things in here. We've been talking about how, you know, you could read this as like, go for yourself, send for yourself, cross over for yourselves. But on a deeper level, it could just as well be written in Hebrew as go to yourself. So when you, when you answer Messiah's call, you're going to who you most truly are. You're finding your true identity. When you're, when, when it says send for yourselves, and we begin having people in our congregation who are going to Israel, like Linda. She was like one of the spies going out from the people of Israel to spy out the land and come back and say, it's a good land, and I have met Messiah there. And she was able to share a testimony. You know, that was part of us f- sending to ourselves. That's part of us finding who we are as a congregation. And here in this stage, it says, cross over for yourselves into the land. It also says, cross over to yourselves into the land. And what, what I think it's saying there, and this is a very relevant word not only for us, as a group, but for the body of Messiah here in Prince Albert, as, as we cross over into understanding our covenant connection with Israel, that we are members of that commonwealth, as we cross over into understanding our heritage as B'nai Avraham, children of Abraham, we are finding ourselves. We are coming into who we most truly are as the body of Messiah. We are finding our real identity. And I pray that the Father will bring us fully into that as the body of Messiah in the city and in this province and country. I believe that he is calling us in that direction. Uh, there are a couple other things specifically that I can see about this with regards to our identity. It doesn't say cross over into the land empty-handed, does it? It says cross over into the land with weapons in your hand. Cross over armed for battle. And I'm not talking physically here, right? Because our, our, our battle isn't on a physical level. But we do have spiritual weapons, do we? We do have spiritual tools that Mashiach has equipped us with to advance his kingdom in the city and in this province, in, our, in each of our spheres of influence. And uh, wh- wh- what I get out of that is when we, when we develop that militancy in our discipleship to the Messiah, when we develop that, that attitude that I am armed and ready, that I, that I have the tools that he has given me and I'm learning how to use those tools, we're going to find who we most truly are. We're going to discover our mission and we're going to go into what he has for us. So that's something I see. There's that, there's that militant aspect, and as we embrace that, we will come to understand who we are as a community of disciples. And the early disciples were militant, weren't they? They, they would face unrighteousness and they would shout it down. Uh, they would stand before kings of foreign nations, and they had no problems with declaring very boldly the truth of Messiah. Uh, Paul even made, who, who is, who is the, uh, he was living a pretty loose life. He was like one of the governors in Israel. And, uh, when Paul was in prison, the governor would call him and he would have conversations every now and then. And Paul made him really uncomfortable. Cause it sounds like he wasn't pulling any punches. He was very bold in his testimony. Paul was militant like that. They weren't afraid to lay down their lives, uh, for the message. So, there's, there's another thing I see in this. Um, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to uh, maybe give you some background with a theme that I see in these portions. And it's something that totally did not click with me for years. And I feel like in the last year or two, it's beginning to be something that's really jumping out at me. It's the concept of inheritance. Now, in our culture, an inheritance is something you receive when someone dies. Correct? It's that simple. 
Uh, maybe it's property, maybe it's possessions, maybe it's some monetary sum, whatever. But scripturally, an inheritance is a much bigger theme. And it's important we understand it because it's interwoven all through the scriptures, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the apostolic scriptures. So we want to understand this inheritance theme. Uh, the Hebrew word for inheritance is nachala. Can we all say nachala? Sure. Noon? No, just kidding. I'll spell it in English for you. Um, it's N-A-C-H-A-L-A. Nachala. And uh, it's from the root word nachal. Can anyone tell me what a nachal is? Yeah. Good guess. It's a river. That's correct. It's a, it's a, it's a valley where a river runs through or a creek. Yeah, exactly. Now, why would a country's... Okay, so you have this concept of like the inheritance. You have this co- concept of like uh, the boundaries of Israel. Why would the boundaries of Israel, why would their inheritance be named after a river? This is a very practical uh, topographical question. That's true. In ancient times, rivers were natural boundaries, weren't they? They were the, they were the best way to delineate a country's uh, territory. So, that's why. But... uh what we, what we see here is that the Hebrew word for inheritance also means boundaries. It means your specific area. It means the territory that you're at home in, that you live in. This, this is a bigger concept. So let, let's expand this a little bit more. What, what, what could the inheritance mean to us as disciples of Yeshua? Uh, out here in the nations, fulfilling our mission. Well, I, I, I'll give you what I think is the key. In Psalm chapter 2, a very messianic psalm, we hear the Father, we're privy to this this conversation between the Father and the Son. And we hear the Father saying to the Son, the anointed King, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as what? Your inheritance. And the ends of the earth as your possession. So, what is the inheritance of Yeshua? The nations, that's correct. And the Hebrew word there is goyim, which could also be the Gentiles, correct? Okay. So, Yeshua is in the process of inheriting the nations, isn't he? That's, this is his inheritance. People. How, how do we fit into this? Could it be that we're co-workers with the Father in bringing to Yeshua that which he is worthy of? I, I think of the Moravian movement. They would send people out to the nations to make disciples. And one of their major slogans was, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive that which he is worthy of. To, to win for the lamb that was slain. That which he purchased with his own blood. This is what they lived for. So Yeshua is worthy of people groups being coming to him in adoration. Um, like having their hearts won to him. And I, I think maybe that's where our mission comes in also. We were, we were sent out as a messianic community into the nations to make disciples. To make disciples of what? All the nations. All the Gentiles. So, what I see here is, our inheritance is making disciples. Your inheritance is to make disciples in your area. So when it talks about coming into our inheritance, yes, that does mean the literal land of Israel. But until the Father brings us there, we have an inheritance here in the nations. And our inheritance is bringing people to Yeshua. And uh, that's big stuff. For me, anyway, when I begin thinking in terms of inheritance like that, it begins to make more sense. Um, here's, here's another element of this. Uh, Moshe was specifically was talking to the two and a half tribes. 
when he said, cross over to yourselves. Now the funny thing is, their land wasn't across the Jordan. They weren't crossing over to themselves because their land was east of the Jordan. It would appear from all, from all uh, appearances that they were actually going away from their identity. That they were leaving their families behind while they helped their brethren. And, and here's, what I, here's, here's what I get out of that. Um, he said, cross over to yourselves in serving your brothers. Go over to yourselves in helping them take their inheritance. So, that would be an example of that. Here, here would be an example. Like, Colin, Colin has an inheritance, I believe, in worship. Colin is like, called to be like a David, right? Like, he helps us break out in worship. He helps us just come to the king and praise him. Uh, Colin's gifted in those areas. That's like, I, I believe that's part of Colin's inheritance. And so, you know, when, when we, as an example, we help Colin to come into his inheritance, when we encourage him, when we pray for him, when we, uh, when we worship alongside him, when we, when we value his gifts, you know, his, his even, let's say his gift of songwriting. When he writes a song and we say, that is a great song. Let's sing that song all the time as a congregation. It's like we're helping Colin come into his inheritance, but in that process, we're also finding who we are, aren't we? Because we find out who we most truly are when we're serving other people, when we're raising them up, when we're encouraging them, when we're strengthening their hands, when we're calling them out in their giftings. That's when we find who we are too when we help other people find out who they are. Isn't that cool? So, that, so that's another thing I get from this Avar Lachem phrase here. Hmm. Okay, I, want, I want to share another little area about inheritance. Uh, I had talked about how it's like, it's your boundary, right? It's the area where you're in home and it's the territory that is yours. And I believe that you know, for each one of us, we have spheres of influence. We have people in our lives, whether it be a family, an extended family, uh, maybe in our work situations, uh, you know, on, on a broader level, in the political arena, in the, uh, the economic sphere, in the media. The media is huge. Uh, these are areas of our inheritance. These are areas that we're called to go into and to take ground for the Mashiach and to possess for Him. Called to reach people there. For sure. Your influence, yeah. Like you, each of us have that sphere of influence that he has given us. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully just me talking about these things will get, get those gears chugging about what, what does, what is this inheritance theme? What does that look like? What does it mean in my life? How can we go there together? Um, how is this partially relevant in that regard? I, I even think, uh, you know how there were giants in the land? There were giants in the area that the people of Israel were called to take and inherit? I think that's true in our lives too. If there is an area in your life where there's a giant, if it might be an air, like a stronghold of fear in your life, you're just, you freak out when you think about doing something. Um, maybe it's like an addiction or, or a long-term problem with some sin that just keeps popping up. Or maybe there's just some way that you treat your family and you just, it happens over and over and you say sorry and you regret it, but it just keeps happening. These are giants in our lives. There are a lot of giants in our lives. Every one of us, I believe, has at least one giant in our life. That's the area that you are called to inherit. That's the area that you're called to go in and take that thing. And it may take community to do it. Here's the interesting part of that, though. Did you notice about the sons of, uh, the sons of Manasseh? Specifically, uh, Makir. It says they went out and they took an area that, I don't even know if it was actually delineated for them. It was like they went out and they took some extra ground from the enemy. And it says that that area was named after them. Uh, there was, there was Yair. And he took some towns, he captured them, and that area was named Yair, after him. 
Uh, there was another guy named Novach, and he took some towns, and they were named after him. I, I think there's something here. When we take those towns that are our inheritance, when we go in and we tackle those giants in, in the power of Elohim, those are, that becomes your inheritance. That becomes your stronghold. That becomes an area that's named after you. That becomes what you're known, you're known as. So what would be an example in my life? Um, I, I struggled with feelings of fatherlessness in my late teens. My dad wasn't a big part of my life in my late teens, and it was hard for me to not transfer that to God. You know, God isn't very available to me. God is not emotionally involved in my life. God isn't very present. Things like that. Uh, I struggled with questions of what is what is true godly masculinity look like? What is it what is it to be a true man of God? These are some of the things that were giants in my life, giants that I had to face and that I had to tackle and that I had to work through. And it's taken years. But as I've taken those giants out, as I've taken that area of my inheritance, that's become a stronghold in a good sense of my life. I'm very passionate about the fatherhood of God now. I have a deep heart for a fatherless generation. Um, I'm passionate to see young men raised up in true godly masculinity. That's an area that I really I, I burn for, that I feel like I'm more conversant in. So you could you could see that's that's not an area that's named after me, but that's an area that has my name on it now. That's personal to me. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, for each of us, there are areas. Let's say that someone was an alcoholic at some point, and he takes that giant head on, and he takes it down, and he recovers by the grace of, of the Father. Um, that's an area that becomes his inheritance. That's an area where he can help other people. He becomes known as someone who can help other people who maybe are struggling with alcoholism. You know what I mean? So for each one of us, there are those giants. Just ask yourself, what are the giants that you have faced in the past, that you have taken down? What are the giants that the Father is calling you to take down? Because that's your inheritance. And you, 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 you get to go in and take that area for him. So don't just ignore that area. Don't just... Don't just uh, block that area out of your heart emotionally. Don't just not talk about those things in your family. Those are the things you need to talk about. Those are the areas you need to go down deep into and go through. Because that's your inheritance. That's where you're going to be strong. That's that's where you're going to bring life to other people and freedom. So, I, I feel like that's something that Yeshua is really encouraging us in. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a brief overview of a couple other chapters here. There's some notable themes. Uh, chapter 30 of the book of Numbers talks about the relationship between a husband and wife and the relationship between a father and a daughter. Uh, the end concludes by saying, these are the laws which Yahweh commanded Moshe between a man and his wife, uh, between a father and his daughter, while she's in her youth, in her father's house. And, I don't know. It, you know, when you read this at first value, it's like, of all the things that he could have said about marriage, is this the most important thing he had to say? You know, of all the things that Elohim could have taught me about how to raise Tirzah, is this what he had to say? You know, at first glance, like, it feels like there's a disconnect here. I don't get it. So I, I want to go there with you, because this is the most important thing that he had to say. There's some deep principles here that I want to look at with you. And the beautiful thing is, every father-daughter relationship is a little miniature of the father and his relationship with you as his daughter, or... Me as his son also. Um, every every husband-wife relationship is a miniature of the relationship between us as the bride and the Mashiach. Right? So as we talk about these physical elements, they're actually reflecting deeper spiritual things that are very true in every one of our lives. So I, I wanted to look at that together. Um, basically, what this chapter is saying is, and you know, we read it, but you know, if, uh, if, uh, if a girl in her dad's house makes a vow, 
her dad's allowed to cancel it out. If a woman in her husband's house makes a vow, her husband is allowed to cancel it out if he deems that the best thing or the most important. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. It kind of flies in the face, I think, of the way Western culture works, doesn't it? Wait a minute. Like, this doesn't seem fair. The women are treating like, treated like they're prone to making silly vows or something. Well, there's actually, there's some deeper stuff here that was probably especially relevant in, in that world. But it's, I don't think it's just talking about any vow. Um, situationally, if you look at verse 13, it specifies, it talks about every vow and every binding oath to humble herself. Her husband may confirm it or annul it. So humbling yourself is like when you take a vow to fast for a designated period of time. Uh, it's when you take a vow to abstain from conjugal relations for a specific period of time. And you know, it does make sense that if you want to have a healthy marriage, you're not just going to go off and make some massive spiritual commitment without consulting with your spouse. I mean, there are two people in the equation, you know, and our lives do happen to affect each other. So you can say that that's smart. Um, the interesting thing is, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's giving this wise, sagely counsel to these new believers and the congregation in Corinth. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he basically says the same thing. He doesn't reference the Torah, but you can hear the principle there. Um, he's talking about couples abstaining from relations for periods of time. And he says in verse 5, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you can hear that, that Paul is teaching about the value of agreement in, uh, in, spiritual, in spiritual relationships, and specifically in marriage. It makes sense. Um, what, okay, let, I'll, I'll make this personal. What can I learn about this? What, what I learned from this chapter is that God is calling me to be involved in my wife's spiritual life. You know, God isn't, God is, I, 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 God isn't calling me to just come home and grab a beer and plunk down on the couch and watch TV for all, all evening, aside from having supper and then go to bed. You know, he, he, he's calling me to, to uh, actively interact with my wife, even when maybe I, I feel tired or I don't really feel like it. Or maybe I'm not feeling very spiritual that day, but maybe she is. And as a husband, I get to, I get to ask her, like, you know, how, how, what are you thinking about? What's God teaching you? Um, what's going on in your spiritual life? What have you been praying about lately? Things like that, right? And of course, that doesn't just apply to us in a marital relationship. These are great questions that all of us as brothers and sisters, as, as friends, can be asking each other. There's something special about that, that for some reason, the Almighty thought husbands really need to be encouraged in this area, right? So there's a whole chapter about it. <laughs> you know, otherwise, you know, the husband will be going about his day and doing his own thing, and then his wife will be like, yeah, and she'll be talking away to him and being like, da-da-da, and I did this and this, and I prayed that and that, and blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, and then I took this vow, da-da-da. And you know, maybe if he's not listening, he'll just be like, uh-huh, oh, rep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'll just go right over his head, right? And she'll do some crazy thing and he'll be like, and then later you'll hear about it. I don't know. It's just, what I also get from this though is that, you know, like, I'm learning. I'm a new Abba. I have a daughter. I, you know, what I, what I get out of this is, you know, I, I really want to be involved in my daughter's life as she's growing up. I, I don't want to just be like checked out auditorily when I'm at home. I want to be listening to what she's talking about. And uh, pray with her regularly and do stuff like that. So those are some practical things that I, I get out of this chapter. It, it really places, what I, what I, what I learned from this is it, it really, uh, places a responsibility on men to be, to involve themselves in their families' lives. Especially the spiritual, the spiritual life. And that, that's a good thing to be, uh, encouraged in. Uh, something that Colin taught me from this parish several years ago, 
and it really challenged me. Uh, there was there was a season in my life when the Father was really challenging me in the area of passivity. Sometimes I'm just lazy. Sometimes I don't feel like doing anything. Sometimes I'll be spiritually passive when I should be like active and aggressive for Him. You know, um, sometimes someone will say something and it's so not true, and I have the option of just kind of like ignoring it, letting it slip. You know. And that's what I prone, that's what I'm prone to do, because I hate disagreements. I hate disagreeing with people, right? Or, or, or actually saying, well, you know, what about this? What, you know, I disagree and just saying what I think, you know? That's an area he's really challenged me in. Maybe that's another giant in my life that's being, becoming part of my inheritance. I don't know. But Colin pointed out in this chapter years ago, when I was really going through this process that, uh, you know, a man's silence is deemed agreement. So if he hears this vow and he, doesn't actively and vocally say, you know, I, I don't think this is the best thing. We're going to have to cancel this one, you know, prayerfully, cancel it or whatever. Um, then his silence is, is, is viewed as affirming that which was said. And I wonder if that isn't true in our lives also. Even as the body of Messiah. You know, when there, when there are things being spoken over the media, when there are political agendas being pushed, um, when there's legislation that's trying to be passed in our government, if we hear about it and we don't say anything, could it be that that's viewed as agreement with it? Could it be that that is deemed in the court of heaven is silent affirmation of whatever lies may be being spoken or whatever unrighteousness may be being pushed? Um, maybe on a practical level, what we can learn from that is firstly, you know, when you see something, when you hear something like that in whatever arena, like the ones I just listed, and cry out to God in prayer. Say, I disagree with this. I, this, I will, I have no alliance with this whatsoever. I will not make a covenant with death. I will make no covenant with falsehood, etc. That's the first thing you can do. You can pray and be vocal in that area. And you know, there may also be a place to speak out publicly, whether it be in a congregational setting, whether it be in, in the, the arena of the media, uh, maybe it's just at work or with a friend. But there's that place to not be silent when, when unrighteousness is being pushed. That's that's an area that he's really challenging me in. You know, this applies to so many arenas. Uh, one that I believe the the Father is really calling us is the body of Messiah is in the area of anti-Semitism. You know, if we're quiet about Israel, if we're not praying for Israel, then maybe that maybe that's tantamount to anti-Semitism. If we are not actively supporting the Messianic Jewish movement, which is cutting edge for Israel, which is going to make all the difference in the long term. The Messianic Jewish movement is the remnant of Israel. If we're not actively supporting that and verbally affirming it and praying, I don't know. Maybe the Father views that as being the opposite. Could it be? So, I, I, I think that maybe another area that the Holy Spirit is calling us. I, I think Tommy Waller did a great job speaking at the Canadian Revival Center about that topic uh, two weeks ago. Just talking about how Yeshua is the King of Israel. And Israel is a geographical place. Israel is a specific group of people. And uh, how we are being called to support Israel. Because God is passionate about Israel. He is zealous over Zion. And if we want to reflect Him, if we want to glorify Him in this world, maybe we'll end up being a little bit passionate about Israel too. I, I, I don't know. Maybe. Okay? So anyway, Tommy did a great job talking about that. Um, there's one word in here that I think is really mistranslated. Um, you have this Hebrew word. You know the word shalach, right? Shalach means what? Send. To send out. Yeah, it's like a plant shalaching shoots, sending them out. 
uh, there's a cognate word, it's really closely related, and it's salach. Everybody say salach. Salach can be translated as one of two things, release or forgive. It's usually translated as one of those two words. And you can see in this passage that it says, you know, when the father, the husband, annuls the vow, and Yahweh will forgive her. And I don't know, the forgiving thing sounds like he really was offended by something. You know, you have offended me, but I forgive you, right? But the Hebrew word there is salach, and I think it would be better rendered as release. And I think that gives us a fuller understanding of forgiveness too. It gives us a fuller understanding of the forgiveness that we're called to offer to the world around us, and also the forgiveness that the Father's offered us in the Gospel of Messiah. So, you know, forgiveness isn't just like him saying, well, you know, that really bugged me when you said that, but it's okay now. You know, well, that hurt my heart, but I forgive you. Yeah, maybe that's an element of it. But the forgiveness that's offered in the gospel is release, total release. If you have been addicted to a sin, then it is release from that sin. If you are struggling with ma- massive guilt or regret about your, your past or, or, or something that's just holding on to you and you can't break up, the gospel is that Yeshua is here to release you from that thing. Not just forgive you because you did something wrong, but release you from it. That, that's, that's very practical. So that's what we see in here. She's, she's released from her obligations. She's released from whatever consequences her, her words may have had. And, uh, thank the Father for that release. Wow. Thank you, Abba. Um, wanna point one thing out about leadership training in this passage, because I think it, it dovetails really nicely with helping each other come into our inheritance. Uh, a couple of parishes ago, Pinchas, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, came on the scene. He was zealous for righteousness. He was infuriated by how people were floating the Holy One of Israel in the very camp. They were thumbing their nose at God. And uh, he, so he shows up on the scene with a spear in his hand, and he runs this couple through as they are committing immorality. Intro, intro, enter Phineas. Well, he shows up again in this parsha. And uh, this time they're sending him out with these 12,000 soldiers. This, this uh, elite group of 12,000 soldiers are being sent to Midian to, uh, how does it say, take full vengeance on them. And uh, it's interesting that Phineas was sent out. Why not Eliezer? What, what I see in that is, it may have been that philosophy of leadership training that says, we, we value our younger generation. We want to see our young people raised up in their areas of gifting. So if Phineas has displayed a real affinity in the area of zeal, and uh, if he even has the, like, a, the possibility of having a side that would be best expressed in a, a combat situation, then we'll send him out with the army. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of, I kind of see that thing there. And of course that's an area that we're, that's a, that's a, an area that we're really developing as a movement also. A um, couple little comments here. I think I'll talk to 12.30 if that's okay. Can we all track till 12.30? Okay. Might even be shorter than that. But um, chapter 33 of Numbers is a journal entry of national proportions that spans 40 years of time. Can you imagine a nation's journal entry that spans 40 years of time? Well, that's what it is. It's it's a list of the campsites where Israel camped during those 40 years in the wilderness. And uh, if you actually count them, they number 42, which is very interesting. The woman of Israel in the wilderness at 42 campsites. Is there any is there anywhere else in Scripture where that theme emerges? 
the woman in the wilderness, 42. Yeah. Revelation 12 talks about the woman with the crown of 12 stars on her head. 12 stars on her head means all the tribes of Israel. That means all the people of Israel. That doesn't just mean Jewish people. It means all the people of Israel, which according to Paul includes all of us in this room, doesn't it? Okay? So it's talking about this woman. She goes out into where? The wilderness. On what? The wings of the great eagle. Uh, one of the only times that code word, other times that code word is used in, is in reference to the historical exodus from Egypt. It's like the op, the, uh, the operation exodus for, from Egypt was like, had the code word eagle's wings. It's like operation eagle's wings, right? Get the people out of, out of Egypt, get them to Mount Sinai. And it uses that same term. And here's another one. How many, how many months is she going to be in the wilderness? Approximately 42. So, what we learn from this is the Torah isn't just about our past. The Torah is about our future as the people of God. There may be a time when we as the people of God will be out in the wilderness, whatever that looks like. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to speculate on the details. And it may be about 42 months. And uh, there may be the same dynamics that happen in the Torah playing out again in the future. If that's going to be the case, then what we can learn from that is the Torah is the best survival manual you have for the future. The Torah is your survival manual. Paul said that too, didn't he? He said, these things were written for our instruction. These things were written to be our Torah, to teach us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And if Paul thought that the ends of the ages had come upon the believers in Corinth at that time, how much more are the ends of the ages upon us, 2,000 years later? So the Torah is very relevant for our future, isn't it? (laughs) So anyway... 42 months. Um, there are a couple place names here that have meanings in the Hebrew that I believe are also connected with that Revelation 12 scenario, the woman um, going out into the wilderness. And I just wanted to share them briefly with you. I think they apply to us in our personal lives following Yeshua also on a regular basis. Um, Numbers 33, verse 5. What does it say the people of Israel's first stop was on their way out of Egypt? Ramses is where they departed. That was the edge of Egypt. Sukkot, that's correct. Is there a festival called Sukkot? How many of you have celebrated Sukkot before? Okay. Did it get you thinking about the future at all? About the return of Mashiach? About the momentous events leading up to that time? Maybe even some of those Revelation, Book of Revelation scenarios? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want to learn about that, just do Sukkot. Get, make yourself that, that um, temporary dwelling or get out there in your camper or your tent or whatever for a week. And it'll, it'll, it'll get you really thinking in these terms in a greater way. And in fact, why did he say to do Sukkot? To remember the 40 years in the wilderness. I want to share with you four place names that follow after Sukkot that I believe could, be, could give a description of the future also. That specific uh, window of time that was approximate three and a half years. Uh, it talks about Atom. Uh, the root for the, the place Atom is the word Tom. That's a nice, that's a nice name. Hey, Hannah? Yeah. Tom in Hebrew means mature or complete. What does this tell us? It tells us that that final three and a half years before Mashiach's return, when the bride is out in the wilderness, that could be a time when she is being completed in her bridal preparations, a time when she is reaching maturity before Yeshua, to whom her betrothed comes back. Uh, the next, there are two other ones. It talks about Pihachirot. 
And there are a couple of different things that this could mean. There's some really interesting traditional Jewish commentary on this that I can't get into right now. But essentially what it means is freedom. All right? Freedom. So there's going to be this element of freedom in that final three and a half years before Yeshua's return. Hmm, interesting. And the other word is, or talks about baltzfon. Uh, the word there for tzfon means concealment. So that's the, that's another element. And it, and it does say in Revelation 12, what? That she is like, she's protected, she's concealed in some way from this satanic onslaught coming against her. Uh, the final one is after a, after a tom, they go to a place called Marah in 33 verse 8. Actually, it says three days after their great escape. So we have that element of three days. You know, three and a half years is pretty close, actually. And then they go to Marah. Marah in Hebrew means what? That's a more commonly understood one. Bitter water. Yes. So I mean, you know, in the midst of these themes of of concealment, of freedom, of being brought to maturity, there could also be an element of the bitterness that accompanies hard times, that accompanies the trials that the Father takes us through. Yeah. So that's what I get out of that. Uh, on a calendrical note, in terms of like where we are in time, we are in the fourth month of the Hebrew calendar. We are reaching Rosh Chodesh in about a week and a half of the fifth month. That's the anniversary of the death of Israel's first Kohen Hagadol, Israel's first high priest. Uh, we read in... Numbers chapter 30, oh sorry, not 30. Numbers chapter 33 verse 38, that Aharon died on Rosh Chodesh of the fifth month. It's an interesting fact. And it might be a day just to stop and remember that. It may be a day to study the, the priestly calling that we have as believers also. There, there could be a correlation there. Um, here's something interesting that gives us a really deep insight into Aaron and what he was about, and also what, about, what, the, what the book of Leviticus and the Aaronic priesthood in general is about. Uh, Aaron's name, the root of it means a mountain. Okay, Everybody say mountain. The, the closest equivalent you'd have in English would be Monty. Monty means mountain in English. Okay, It'd be like kind of the closest equivalent. Aaron dies on a mountain called mountain. His name is Aharon. He dies on a mountain called Hor. H-O-R. Okay? The Hebrew word for mountain is Har. Everybody say Har. So Mount Sinai is Har Sinai. Mount Sinai, Har Sinai. And what's the name of this mountain, this Har that Aharon died on? Hor. And it's spelled the same. Hey Resh. So there's this, there's this connection between Aharon and the high priesthood and this whole priestly ministry and mountains. What, what is it about mountains? Something, the biggest thing that jumps out at me about mountains is when you climb a mountain, it gives you a vision of where you're going. And from there you go down the mountain and then you go to where you're going. And I think that's very true also of, uh, of the book of Leviticus, of the whole Torah, of the Aaronic priesthood. It is a good priesthood. It is legitimate. It continues to be legitimate today. They always said over and over, these things are forever. The anointing on Aaron and his sons is forever. So I affirm that. But there is a greater priesthood. And I believe they work contemporaneously. It's the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's the priesthood that Yeshua is the, the high priest of. And when, when we, when we begin reading Leviticus, for instance, when we read the Torah, it's like we're climbing the mountain. We're getting that vision of the inheritance that he has for us. But is the Torah alone enough to get us there? 
If we just stay in the first five books like the Samaritans, for instance, if we just stay in the Hebrew Bible like Orthodox Judaism, do we get there? No. Who is the one who takes us into the land, into the inheritance? Yeshua, that's correct. Just like Yehoshua, Joshua, the general of Israel. So, that's what I get out of that. I'm going to give you a quick overview of Yochanan in our last three minutes, okay? The John passage. And, uh, again, I'm going to really try to draw out those elements that we would miss in our English Bibles or if we didn't understand the Jewish context. Okay, Yochanan 18.4. Yeshua knows what's going to happen to him. The soldiers are coming to arrest him. And what does he do? He actually walks right out to meet them. I really look up to Yeshua in that regard. He was so bold in accomplishing his mission. He, he could be really in your face at times. And I, I respect him about that. He said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Yeshua. That's me. And the second time, there must have been some supernatural thing that happened because it like knocked them all over backwards. Just the force of Yeshua's words. Wow. Yochanan uh, 18.20, Yeshua says that he always taught at the local Baptist church. No, just joking. I love the Baptist church. Yeah, I, love, I love these guys here uh, as their hosts. But it is notable that contextually in the first century, Yeshua loved the synagogue. He loved going to the synagogue. That was where he taught. And what was the other place he taught at? The temple. He loved the temple. It makes me wonder what things are going to look like when he gets back. I don't know. Maybe we'll be going to synagogue with the master. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be cool to see him, the author of the Torah, go up and, and hoist that Torah scroll and lead us in the blessings and, and, and we could hear the Torah taught from Yeshua himself? Man, that is a glimpse of our future. That is a picture of the Messianic era. I'm looking forward to that. Man, I would love to worship in the temple alongside our Savior. Wouldn't that be awesome? He's, you know, if David was passionate, I wonder if Yeshua is not going to be so passionate sometimes when we're worshiping in the temple. I think so. <laughs> Maybe you could be one of the, like, the singers who are singing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Tommy talked about Yeshua being the king of Israel. That was one of the big themes that popped up, uh, 1833 and 1837. Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Yeshua says, I, it's true, I am a king. So when we understand this kingship theme, we will understand something very deep about our Savior. Uh, he went on to say, why did he come into the world? To testify to the truth. And that's our job too, isn't it? Later on he said, as the Father has sent me, I sent you. So that same mission that Yeshua came with from the Father, your mission is identical. It looks exactly the same. And we're going to go there together as disciples. And that, in, that, in, that includes testifying to the truth, even when it's not politically correct even when it could get you in a lot of hot water, even when it could result in your premature death, as is evidenced in Yeshua's case himself. Yeah, that's true. Thy law is truth, it says in Psalm 119. And, of course, the Torah is the foundation, right? But on it is built the writings of the prophets. On it is built the new covenant. On it is built everything about Yeshua, our Savior. Hmm? Yes, amen. <laughs> Um, an interesting fact, it says what was written in Hebrew, that tells us that Hebrew must have been a spoken language in the land of Israel, because the Greek there doesn't say Aramaic, it says Hebrew, which means Hebrew was spoken in the land of Israel, and it says Yeshua from Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And in Hebrew that reads, Yeshua Hanotsri 
Vihamelach Hayahudim. And if you look at each the, the the acronym that that forms, each one of those letters, it spells Yud Yeshua, Hanotri Hey, Vimelech and King Hayahudim Hey of the Jews, and that spells Yud Hey Vav Hey. And if you if you're familiar with the Jewish modus operandi and hermeneutic when it comes to scripture, Jewish people love acronyms. Jewish people notice acronyms all the time. So I guarantee you that that would have been noticeable. And I don't think that was a mistake that that was how it was probably written. Um, Yeshua talks about making Aliyah to his father and our father, to his Elohim and our Elohim. That, you know, it's, Aliyah isn't just about going up to read from the Torah, is it? It's about joining the Master and that, that going up before the throne with him in, in spiritual revelation. And that's something that he offers us every day. Making Aliyah every morning when you read that, that, that daily Aliyah, when you read that section of the portion. Um, also in 1926, we, we see Yeshua living the Torah. Uh, he, he sees his mother, she's in need, so he makes arrangements for her care. A very practical way of showing honor to his parents. And uh, in Jewish tradition, that's really important also. Uh, children are expected to take care of their children in their older age. Um, in John 19, or John 20, 19, 21, and 26, Yeshua three times, he appears to his disciples, and what are the first words out of his lips? Shalom. <laughs> Shalom lachem. Shalom to you. Isn't that cool? So you know, for us as, as disciples of the Master, when I like, when I walk up to you and I say, Shalom, I'm saying, Yeshua is alive from the dead. You know, and may he appear to you with his shalom. Like that's what he say. That's what it is, right? So when we walk around and we say Shabbat Shalom, it's not just like a really cheery tune, right? We're like deeply blessing each other with resurrection life. That's what I get out of that. So let's continue to sing Shabbat Shalom on a regular basis. Um, it's interesting in John 21 that Yeshua's disciples didn't recognize him. Did you notice that? Like, what does that tell us? It tells us that there are times when Yeshua will be right there and you might not even recognize him. He's closer than what you think. Let's just live with that awareness. Yeshua is alive from the dead. He's somewhere around here. He might be closer than what you think. You know, wake up every morning and tell yourself that. When you're at work, tell yourself, Yeshua is somewhere around here. He's alive from the dead. The disciples didn't recognize him. What if he's closer than what you think and you're just not recognizing him? Maybe, uh, Yochanan 21.5, Yeshua calls his disciples his sons. Unfortunately, it's mistranslated as his children. Yeshua didn't call a bunch of burly, grown men who are blue-collar workers children. Hey kids, how's it going? He called them his sons. And that makes a lot of sense in the Hebrew because a rabbi would call his disciples his sons. You see that plastered throughout rabbinic literature. So Yeshua calls you his son. Yeshua calls you his daughter. As uh, as you answer that call to discipleship, um, two fun two fun little things here. Yeshua prophesied to Shimon Kifa how he died, and he's your prophet too. He wants to communicate to you things about your life, about your future, and specifically prophesied how Simon Peter would glorify God. The type of death by which he would glorify God. That's radical language, isn't it? A violent death for Messiah. A, a premature death for the cause of truth glorifies God in an ultimate way. 
It's easy for us, it's easier for us to talk about the daily level, right? Well, of course, you know, I take up my cross every day. You know, I live for God every day. And that's important, but there's that other side that gets really radical. And it's not saying we're going to go and try and get ourselves killed, right? But it's just saying this was something that was in the DNA of the early believers, and it's something in our DNA also. Um, in, in traditional Judaism, dying a death for the faith that glorifies God is called Kiddush Hashem. The sanctification of the name. It's like the ultimate sanctification of God's name. To die for the faith. To die with the Shema on your lips. And then, uh, finally, 21 verse 23. Yeshua and Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter are walking along and he's telling him about his future. And, uh, and then Shimon Kepha looks back and there's another, there's the other disciple, right? He says, well, master, what about this guy? And I love what Yeshua says. He's like, essentially what he says is, Simon, that's none of your business. You follow me, Simon. So, you know, in, in each of our personal discipleships, let's just remember what our business is and what our business isn't, and let's each of us follow him for ourselves. Let's each of us passionately pursue Mashiach for ourselves. Let's each of us focus on our own observance to the Torah and growing in our own observance of the mitzvot. And as we do that, I think we're going to find ourselves walking right next to the Master. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.